Our reading comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 to 3, verse 10. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, he may, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not of God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Please do keep those sheets out and allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you speak to us through it. Please speak to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Children have been born into your family, then uh, you'll no doubt remember the early days after their birth, even if they weren't necessarily your children, but into your family. Uh, you'll remember the early days as grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody rushed in uh, in, in the early weeks. And what was the, the topic of conversation in those early days after the birth? Well, it's the baby, of course. It's the baby and the baby's family likeness. Uh, and so you say, look, he has Uncle Joe's eyes, doesn't he? Or, or, or she has a full head of, of black hair just like her sister. Or did you notice he has Grandpa's ears, they all say rather disappointedly. At least that's the case in my family. Um, 
the, the crane ears seem to just go generation after generation. I'm still told that new cousins uh, look like me when I was their age. And I guess all of us have that experience. And according to our reading this morning, the same is true spiritually speaking. We're told in verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 3 that Christians are the children of God. And in verses 4 to 10, we're given the diagnostic test to see which family someone might belong to. Because in the same way, those who are not yet children of God will bear the family resemblance of their family. And John is concerned that we should be able to tell the difference both in ourselves, but also in others. And I just want to save you any sense of suspense or, or any time for your, your minds to drift and, and just get straight to the point. John helpfully summarizes it very starkly in verses 9 to 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Now, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Spiritually speaking, there are only two families that we can belong to. God's family or the devil's family. And the way of telling which family someone belongs to, which family we belong to, is by looking for the family likeness. God's children are marked by righteousness. The devil's children are marked by sin. John says it as clear as that, and yet immediately questions and objections will begin forming in our minds, and so uh, we're going to look at what John says in the rest of this, um, this section. We're going to start at the beginning to see what God is saying through John. So the first point I want us to see from verses 1 to 3 is that the Father's love makes us family, and it makes us fit. The Father's love makes us family, and he makes us fit. Verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Now, some English translations uh, translate this maybe a bit more literally, showing the emotional force behind what John is saying. He's saying, behold, what kind of love is this? It's the kind of exclamation, look, isn't this amazing? And what is the amazing thing that creates that emotional force in John, that emotional response? It's that we should be called the children of God. And not only called the children of God, but that's actually what we are as Christians. Christians actually become part of the divine family, receiving a noble status, of bearing the family likeness, enjoying the eternal inheritance, all the things that go along with being a member of the family, Christians receive. And that's great news. But why does John have such an emotional response to the love of God? Because he knows at what great cost. It came to us. 
that we can only become children of our Heavenly Father because Jesus has paid for the privilege with His blood. And when we look at the cross, we see there a love that shrinks from no sacrifice. A love that is not prompted by a lovableness in you or in me, but comes from the depths of God's infinite love. And we see on the cross a love that cannot be extinguished by sinfulness, but God pours out His treasures on unworthy people like us. It far exceeds every other love because it makes us part of God's family, a privilege that cannot be earned and cannot be revoked. No more than I could earn my way into your family or that my family could revoke the fact that I'm a member of my family. It's because of that love that we are called the children of God, and that is what we are. So that's the first truth we need to to understand from John's argument. Christians are made the children of God by God's gracious love, not by nature, not by right, but by the love shown on the cross. But we must also grasp that even though we're now family, We're not yet what we shall be. That's what he says in verse 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. God isn't satisfied just to make us members of his family. Not not in some sort of legal fiction sense. No, he he wants us to bear the family likeness. From the first day that God's love compels us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus, his loving work continues day after day after day to make us more like Jesus. So Christian, your, uh, your... to expect that God's work in you today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that is to make you more and more like the Lord Jesus. Now in the same way that you don't recognize my family resemblance to my father or grandfather because you've never met my father or my grandfather, people will not recognize Uh, The world will not recognize us becoming more like Christ because they didn't know Jesus in the first place. They didn't recognize who he was. Do you see? And yet, Christians will recognize. And moreover, more importantly, God will recognize your increasing Christ-likeness. Until at last, When Christ appears, we will confidently stand before him uh, with no reason to be ashamed. That's what we read in those last verses of chapter 2. And everyone at that point, both 
believers and non-believers alike will behold the Lord Jesus in all his glory and they'll look at him and they'll look at us and they'll say, I see the likeness. I see the likeness in you and in you. The way he is righteous, I see the right deeds you've done. And they'll see the family resemblance, a pure and holy God with a pure and holy children. And that's where we're all headed, believer or unbeliever alike, to that day of revelation. So in summary of this first point, in his great love, God makes us his children by his By his great love for us, he continues to make us more like Jesus. And because that's who we are and and where we're headed as Christians, John is concerned that we should do everything in our power to live according to the love of God and not against it. Let me say that again. We should do everything in our power to live according to the love of God and not against the love of God. And so he now turns his focus to that great enemy of God and God's family, sin. So my second point from uh, verses 4 to 8, all sin is demonic rebellion against God. All sin is demonic rebellion against the love of God. As we've seen in previous weeks, it seems John is writing to an anxious church, a a nervous church, a church that has had previous members depart from them and depart from the teaching of the apostles. That's the important thing to remember. It's not just that they went to a church down the road, it's that they departed from the teaching of the apostles and they were trying to convince others to do that as well. Now they downplayed the importance of Jesus' life and death. Uh, They were probably denying that the way we live our lives in this physical world matters much at all. God is concerned with spiritual things. He doesn't really care about physical things. That's the sort of message they were teaching. And so perhaps they were even saying that for the Christian, there's no such thing as sin at all anymore, really. But in response to that kind of false teaching, John writes this in verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Rather than getting into the nitty-gritty debate with John about, or with the, with the false teachers about what specific activities are or aren't sin, he gets to the heart of what sin itself is. Sin is lawlessness. Rebellion against God's right authority. Elsewhere in Scripture, that same word, lawlessness, is used in application to Satan and in application to his demons. And as John continues his argument, it becomes clear that he intends us to make that link. Sin is not about isolated indulgences. It's not about having too much chocolate at Christmas time or or whatever else you might think. Sin is always and everywhere an expression of siding with God's enemy. Now there are certain sins that we 
easily overlook, that we excuse in ourselves and others, that we say, that's not really so bad, is it? One one author uh, calls them respectable sins. Things like unwholesome speech or unthankfulness or or self-indulgence. You know, we so easily give these types of sin a pass. We never really deal with them. And yet, if what John is saying here is true, then every time we share a juicy bit of gossip, every time we take what we have for granted, every time we fail to exhibit self-control, we are engaged in rebellion against God. It's like we're siding with the devil and joining his family business. Now, we would all agree, I'm sure, that murderers and child abusers and other serious sins are demonic. But white lies? Something in us makes an excuse for that kind of sin, doesn't it? But John says it is a mistake to judge the gravity of sin by its consequences. That's not how we judge the seriousness of sin. It isn't the amount of damage that results. It's the thing itself. Sin is lawlessness. And Jesus Christ thought that all sin, supposedly minor or respectable or or not, major, all of it was serious enough to go to the grave for us. Verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to take away sin and to destroy the work of the devil. And that's the whole reason he came and lived and died and was raised. So there's no room for harboring and holding on to sin in the life of the Christian. No room for overlooking my my pet sin and saying, well, that's just the way I am. Persistent refusal to repent of sin should be seen as a very serious issue, perhaps even a sign that we don't really know Christ. We're not really in his family. For if we know him, how can we go on rebelling against him? But, of course, anybody who has been a Christian for more than a few days will reply, of course I'm a sinner. Of course I sin. I know it, I do. And John knows that, too. That's why a few weeks ago in chapter 1, we saw in in chapter 1, verse 8, he said this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So how are we going to reconcile those two things? 
If we sin, we're not in the family of God. If we say we're without sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. Well, I think the key to understanding what John is saying is by paying close attention to what he's written. Particularly, notice the tenses of the verbs he uses as he describes this salvation jeopardizing lawlessness. Verse 4, everyone who sins. Verse 6, keeps on sinning, continues to sin. Verse 8, does what is sinful. Verse 9, continue to sin, go on sinning. Verse 10, does not do what is right, does not love. The verbs that John is using are all in this present continuous tense. In other words, those who sin and go on sinning are in real danger. Persistent lawlessness is only possible for those who reject the lawgiver. But those who try to do what is right should be reassured. In them, the family resemblance is clear. In all of you, the family resemblance is clear. So how can we apply what John is saying here? First, Jesus appeared to take away our sins so Christians can be free from fear and guilt and shame. Now, maybe you are sometimes like me, kept up at night by the memory of sinful ways you have acted or spoken. Perhaps there are people who you've hurt and situations that you've caused that you have no hope of fixing at this point. And sometimes that sense of guilt or shame can overwhelm us, even causing us to fear God's punishment. But when those thoughts assault us, we simply have to remember this apostolic message. The reason Jesus came is to take away sin. The guilt, the shame that he experienced publicly condemned on the cross. That wasn't his own guilt and shame and sin. That was ours. After all, in him is no sin. It was ours. Christian brothers, Christian sisters, your sin has been dealt with by him. And if you're hanging on to your guilt and your shame, then you are forgetting the reason he appeared. And non-Christian friends, know that Jesus can take away your sin, your guilt, your shame. He came for that very purpose. Put your faith in him. Experience the weight of those things being lifted. Secondly, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So Christians are no longer enslaved to sin. It can sometimes feel impossible to change, don't you think? Sometimes... We can begin to just accept sin in our lives and make excuses for it. It's just the way I am. I have a short temper. I drink too much. I, I am just lazy. But Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil 
There is no sin too strong for him to break in you. The Christian is utterly, radically freed from the power of sin. And so as you find yourself slipping into sinful patterns, brothers and sisters, you could pray to Jesus and say, you came to destroy sin, destroy this sin in me. Set me free. It is the normal Christian pattern, I I believe, to be delivered from sinful patterns. Sometimes all at once, sometimes slowly and step by step, but always allowing Jesus to do what he came to do. And non-Christians, if you feel powerless to change things that um, hurt you and the people around you, there is a reason that you feel powerless. It's because until the blood of Christ is working for you and you allow Christ to rescue you, you are powerless. Sin is enslaving you, but it doesn't have to remain that way if you'll put your faith in him. So God, through John, calls all sin lawlessness, demonic rebellion against God. But for all those who continue in Jesus Christ, the love of God is more powerful than the devil and all his schemes. And then finally, the love of God enables us to live as what we are. We've seen that the Father's love makes us children. It makes us like Jesus. We've seen that Jesus' love takes away our sin destroys the work of the devil. And now we see in these last couple verses that the Spirit's love enables us to break the power of sin in our lives and to live in a way that's pleasing to God. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know the children of God, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. You may have read about some of those DNA tests that you can get uh, online. You you can uh, take a a blood sample or a, a spit swab and send it in, and they'll sequence your DNA and tell you what sorts of things you are predisposed to. Do you need to worry as far as I can see, it only makes you worry more, but do you need to worry about Alzheimer's? Or, or do you need to worry about a predisposition to a sort of cancer or those sorts of things? Apparently, our genes can tell us all of those things and more. We're figuring out more and more year by year. Because sooner or later, what's written in your DNA is going to express itself in your life in tangible ways. Like a seed planted deep in us, eventually it'll grow and bear fruit. And so it is with our hearts. If the Word of God, enlivened by the Spirit of God, is planted in our hearts, then we will desire to turn from the lawlessness of sin. Do you see? For the Christian, the Spirit makes us want to live in light of God's love. He convicts us of sin that we would rather overlook. He assures us of the love and and the promises that God has made to us, the forgiveness of sins. And over time, the Spirit 
will produce fruit in us. So Christians, be confident. God is in the business of making you like Jesus. That's the family business. He's planted His Word in your heart by His Spirit. It will produce fruit if only you remain in Him. Allow me to pray. Father, we are all too conscious that much of our lives doesn't bear a family resemblance to the Lord Jesus. And yet you have promised to shape us, to change us, to grow us more in his likeness. And so I pray every Christian person here would experience that power that we've spoken of as the Spirit acts in their lives, as the love of Christ uh, changes them. Please, would every non-Christian here long to know that power and come to experience it themselves? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.